Let's ask the Lord for help. Father God, we thank you that you open your word to us. And we pray today that our hearts may be receptive to all you give us. And she shine Jesus reigning over our lives. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Good morning. If you are taking notes, um, I forgot to give the sermon title. So the sermon title is The Witnesses to the Tale of Two Cities. Now, Pastor Jeremy talked a few weeks ago about Charles Dickens and the Christmas Carol. And uh, perhaps the book of all time that has the most memorable opening line was the tale of two cities. So I'm going to ask you to recite that line if you know it, right? And I'll start it, okay? If you know it. It was the best of times and the, and the worst of times, yes. It was the best of times and the worst of times. Now here's a bonus. There's a bonus round, okay? I don't have a prize, okay? What is the whole opening of the book? Anybody know that? Ah, I do. Only because I looked it up. Okay, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope and the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. That kind of describes the age in which we live. Maybe even some of those uh, words start from the news lately. Light versus darkness. And there are two cities that come to mind here. But for Christmas, I picked two other cities. We got, when the Magi came, where did they go? They went to Jerusalem, which was under King Herod, under Rome, okay? The worst of times. But then there's another little city, isn't there? Bethlehem, where the real king was born. And that Christmas night was the best of times. And Bethlehem was the king, the city of the king. You see, the Magi, who came later, were the kingmakers of the East. And they came out of where? The nations. To worship the true king. Herod represents Rome, right? The earth dwellers we've been hearing about, refusing to repent, refusing to worship. In fact, he doesn't worship the true king, he tries to kill the true king. Herod went from dark to even darker, refusing to worship. There's always been two cities, right, in the world. Hope and despair. Only two. You have the city of the earth dwellers, and then you have, uh, borrowing the language of Augustine, 
the city of God. So the question for us, as we go into our text today, is which city do you belong to when everything is said and done? Now, like uh, Jeremy mentioned last week, I can't handle every detail in this chapter. There'll be things I do not look at. But I'm willing to have a Q&A, like we have been doing, for you to ask all your questions because inquiring minds want to know. You know that. Okay. G.A. Carson thinks that this is the most difficult chapter in Revelation. But I'm going to try and be very straightforward by looking at three movements. We're going to look at the measurement, then two, we're going to look at the two witnesses, and then we're going to look at the seventh trumpet. And to put it all in context, right, we're, we're in the second woe. Okay? And then, at, which is the second woe of the sixth trumpet, and John was just given that little scroll, remember that last week, in chapter 10, and he was told to prophesy about the nations. Right? About the nations. Chapter 11 is part of that prophecy. So let's hop right in to the measurement. Look at, look at uh, chapter 11, chapter, uh, verse 1. John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. When you and I are told to measure something, we usually get on a tape measure, right? But back then, they had a rod, like our yardstick. Uh, but John isn't asked to physically measure these things. In apocalyptic language, measure means to protect, protection and presence. Now, while you could measure a temple building, John is also told to measure those who worship there. So, so it has to be symbolic, right? Like, I can measure, as you came in, I can measure your height and your weight after all those cookies, right? You wouldn't want to know that. But here's why I don't think he's seen a physical temple. The year that he's writing, or seeing this vision, is AD 90. And the temple has been destroyed 20 years earlier, in 70 AD. John has seen the ruins, I'm sure. And his knee-jerk reaction would not be like, oh, there's another temple to be built. No. He knows what's going on. The temple is in ruins. So he was also, he was told to measure those who worship there. Well, how do you measure people there? There is no one worshiping at the temple. Because it's not there. Can you imagine a Jewish Christian looking at a temple mount 
has totally destroyed. And thinking those who worship there, no one's there. It's sad. Thus, we see that the temple of God, the altar, and the worshipers are synonymous for the same thing. The people of God, the communion of saints. Like I said, measure is symbolic for God's protection on the saints. Our God and Father is protecting and watching over his people. We are under his care, his lordship, and sovereign oversight. Um, Ephesians 2, 19 and 21 is helpful here. Um, I'll just give a turn there. Verses 19 and 21. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being our our cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are the the temple. We, the people of God, are that temple. So if that's true, what about the court outside the temple? What does that mean? These, this represents the earth dwellers, the nations that do not follow Jesus. John is told not to measure this. They are not protected by God, especially in Revelation. Do not enjoy the care and presence of a merciful Father. They will actually trample the holy city for 42 months. The people of God are now also seen as the holy city, like I mentioned. The worst of times, the best of times, the city of God. And we will face persecution and animosity from the nations during 42 months. Now, here's the question today, right? This is all why you're here. What does he mean by 42 months? Well, to answer that, we need to look at a little Jewish history. Now, I'm going to give you the history of the world in about 20 seconds. See if I can do this. The Jews left Israel and were exiled into Babylon. That was the first major uh, empire after the Assyrians. Then came the Mino-Persian Empire, and then came Alexander the Great, and then you had Rome, right? Now, when Alexander the Great Great died, he turned his empire, it was turned over to four generals, okay? After much political intrigue and wars, there arose Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who tried his best to wipe out Judaism. He was going to wipe out the Jewish 
faith. In 167 BC, he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar, which is the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel in 1131. And Titus was also brutal, very brutal. Just one example. Um, he outlawed circumcision. And what he did to circumcise babies is he hung them by their necks and killed their mothers. He was not a nice man. And he wanted to require pagan worship in every town, okay? However, he got one town, and I won't give you all the details, you can read about it in Maccabees 1 and 2. There was a priest that defied him, and he had a son, Junus, and his nickname was Maccabee, which means hammer. He revolted and eventually defeated Antiochus, and then the temple was cleansed and rededicated in 164 BC, 42 months after the first desecration. 42 months then became to the Jew a shortcut to the Maccabean revolt. Now, it's like this. If I tell you, if I send you 9-11, some engineers may do like, oh, 13 or 20, right? No, what's 9-11 mean? It means the date, 9-11-2001, when the two towers came down, right? You know where you were? Or for people my age, if I say 11-22-63, right, it's not a code, that's the date that President Kennedy was shot. And everybody my age knows exactly where they were when that happened. I was in second grade in a Catholic school and we heard it over the speaker system back then. Well, for the first century Jew, 42 months is a shortcut for the persecution and under Antiochus that was commemorated by what Jewish feast that we just had, Hanukkah. So 42 months is a picture of intense persecution and suffering. Times of trampling in every generation. Now we saints have and will experience persecution as we proclaim the gospel and stand for Jesus Christ in our earth-dwelling world. We will be trampled on. As Jeremy said some time ago, we've had more people killed for the gospel in the last 200 years than the first 1,800 years. Now, what about the two witnesses? Now, I must admit, I've really changed my view of this since I've been studying this passage. And I'll tell you why. So, I see now that the two witnesses can't be individuals, but are those that worship there. That is, the people of God. D.A. Carson really helped me here. It was really an eye-opener. He said, 
that if you can get the Old Testament apocalyptic language right, then you can get Revelation right. Okay? So if we want to get Revelation 11, 3 through 12 right, we need to get Zechariah 4 right. So if you have, if you have a Bible or your phone, turn to Zechariah. Now there's a, the last book of the Bible in the New Old Testament is Malachi, and go right before that. So we're just going to turn back. We have Matthew and then Malachi and Zechariah 4. I'm not going to read all of it, okay? I'm just going to bounce around a little bit to give you the highlights. And the angel who talked with me, Zechariah 4.1, and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it. And moving on, and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel was the governor in the exile. They were rebuilding the temple. And he's, basically he's being told that it will be by the spirit that he will be able to rebuild the temple with Joshua, the high priest who will finish building the temple. So this is obviously apocalyptic language, right? Zerubbabel does not have branches, right? No, he represents, he is represented by the olive tree, right? So drop down to Zechariah 4.11. Then I said, this is Zechariah said, then I said to him, one of these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Recognize that? Revelation 11, 4. The two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now we only have time for the punch line this morning from Zechariah, when Israel was able to rebuild the second temple after returning from Babylon, Zerubbabel was the governor, right? He couldn't be king because he had an emperor, empire over him. And Joshua, not the son of Nun, Joshua was the high priest, right? So these are the two olive trees in Zechariah. And, by the way, from a Christmas point of view, Zerubbabel is in the kingly line of Jesus in Matthew 1. They represent, these two olive trees in Revelation 
represent the people of God proclaiming the gospel. Do you remember in Revelation 1-6 and 5-10 when I preached last time? We are told that the people of God have been made a kingdom and priests to our God. Two out of three. Priests, priests and king. So we are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Until Christ returns, we are to give witness to the nations that Jesus Christ is born the God-man. Living the life that we could not live, dying the life, dying the death that we deserve for forgiveness of our sins. Raised on the third day, to new life, to defeat death, ascend into heaven, to reign until when? Until he comes again to reign on the earth. Now, this falls into the details that you might want to know, but here's some details that I found very interesting. There are two lampstands mentioned in Zechariah. Two lampstands mentioned in Revelation 11. When the first temple was built, they had ten lampstands. Alright? Then they went into exile to Babylon, and when they rebuilt the temple, the second temple, they had two lampstands. Okay? And when Antiochus, the fourth, Epiphanes, desecrated the temple, he took the lampstands away, so eventually, Judas and the Maccabean replaced them. And this is where Titus is going to come in. When the Roman general Titus attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 AD, AD 70, he removed the two lampstands and took them to Rome. How do we know that? If there is an arch. You know you have an arch? In, uh, in Rome, it's called the Arch of Titus, and engraved on it is Titus as Victor coming into Rome with a lampstand. With a lampstand. So, this is, this is, this is just Paul verse-seeking, okay? I love the symbolism, right? The lights were in the temple. They were never to go out, right? They were never to go out. And then when the temple was destroyed, they were taken out of the temple to Rome. You never, or Matthew says, you, or Jesus said Matthew, you are the light of the world, a city set on the hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So symbolically, the two witnesses represent us, the church. We face persecution for 42 months, which represents the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. We proclaim the gospel. We let the light shine in the darkness while we have opportunity. It is the best of times and the worst of times. Are you still with me? Now we hop to the seventh trumpet. I'm just going to turn that. The seventh trumpet. 
Last week, Pastor Jeremy preached Revelation 10-7, that at the sound of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. We now come to the seventh trumpet. I'm just going to read verses 15 to 19. Then the seventh angel blew the trumpet, and there, was a, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become, has become the kingdom of our God, our Lord, and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power, and listen, and begun to reign. The nation raged. Your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. I see four aspects in here. We're not going to cover them all. But four parts of the mystery that the world now has become God's kingdom, that Jesus begins to reign on the earth, the wicked earth dwellers are judged, and the servants of Jesus are rewarded. Now we have seen the wrath of God on the earth dwellers through the seals and the six trumpets. What is the reward of the saints? After the persecution and death of two witnesses, right, they are raised, right? They lay dead for three and a half days. They are raised and taken up to heaven. We yet have not dived into the details of Jesus' return. But I want to give you my view, okay? We all kind of hold different views. But I'm going to give you my view after now I've been studying Revelation 11. And um, to do that, I want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, if you're new to your Bible, I always think about, you've got the Gospel, Acts, you have Romans, Corinthians, letters, and then you have, uh, I like popcorn, so go eat popcorn, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4. Probably a familiar text. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord, will not foresee those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him, with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. 
and so we will always be with the Lord. Revelation 11.15 says, The world has become Christ's kingdom. And verse 17 says, Christ has begun to reign. Now we know that Jesus has been reigning at the right hand of the Father for eternity. And the Greek grammar here is very interesting. It's the only time in the New Testament that in reigning it is, on verse 17, begun to reign. I believe that this is the moment that Jesus begins to reign on the earth. Now remember I mentioned uh, the Roman general Titus? Well, and his victory parade into uh, Rome? When a victorious general would come into Rome, something interesting would happen. People would hear about them coming, right? And they would go out to meet the general. And then come up behind him and follow him into, into Rome. Picture General Titus a victor on a white horse. In First Thessalonians, the people of God leave the city of the earth dwellers to meet Jesus in the air, and part of the reward is, I think, the wedding supper of the Lamb, perhaps, chapter 19. But then we return to him, right? Jesus is on the white horse, and the church in white robes following him back to the earth, he destroys the destroyers of the earth at Armageddon. Just something to think about. Now, remember my opening question, what city do you belong to? Here's the corollary. Who is your king? Today, we are all worshiping someone or something. And this Christmas, we are presented with the reigning king, Jesus. In the first advent, I think it could have been possible to dismiss a baby. But when King Jesus returns, it will be impossible to ignore him. Philippians 2, 9 and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, we have a choice this morning, this morning after Christmas. Not whether we will vow, but how we will vow. Like the Magi, who, who fell before Jesus and worshipped. Or the earth dwellers, who in chapter 6 of Revelation, bow in fear and cry out, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, 
for the great day of his wrath, of their wrath, has come, and who can stand? How will you bow before Jesus today? At GLC, we believe in the Bible. But we also like Lord of the Rings, I hear. So I, I came across a dialogue between Frodo and Sam as they were sitting at the top, top of the winding stair um, in Kira Mongo in Mordor. This is a long dialogue, but I want you to listen. I think it fits as I conclude with this. Sam, I don't like anything here at all, said Frodo. Set or stone, flesh or bone, earth and air and water all seem accursed. But so our path is laid. Yes, that's so, said Sam. And we shouldn't be here at all. If we had known more about it before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs of Jethrono, adventures, as I used to call them, I used to think they were things that the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for. Because they wanted them. Because they were exciting. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really matter. Folk seem to have just landed in them. Usually, the paths were, were laid that way, as you put it. But I accept they had lots of chances, like us, to turn them back. Only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they wouldn't have been forgotten. But here, here about as they just went on. Not all to a good end, mind you. At least not what the folk outside the story, inside the story, and not outside it call a good end. But aren't always the best tales to hear, though? They, they are the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of tale we fall into. I wonder, said Frodo. I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take anyone that you're fond of, Sam. You may know or guess what kind of tale it is. Happy ending or sad ending. But the people in it don't know. And you don't want them to. Don't the great tales never end? No. They never end as tales, says Frodo. But the people in them come and go when their parts ended. Our part will end later or sooner. Cut. We are the two witnesses in the middle of the tale. As we sit here today, we don't know if it's a happy ending or a sad ending. But this we know. Someday, a trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive 
will meet Christ in the air and dwell with him forever. You and I are in the middle of a tale, and Jesus is the hero of that tale. We have our part to play, whether it's a happy ending or sad ending, in triumph or suffering. As Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Amen. We are the witnesses proclaiming the gospel to a dying world. Part of this proclamation is the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, herald, that's the word we learned last week, herald the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's table is our reenactment of Jesus' story and our participation in it. The bread represents Jesus' body, the cup, his blood, though through which we become a kingdom and priests to God. So this table is for believers, for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and continue to repent of their sins. If you are not a believer here today, then we would ask you to participate by observing. Observe the witness of God's people as we share the kingdom meal like that of the wedding supper of the Lamb. But I encourage you to search your hearts to see what city you belong to. Are you part of your earth dwellers? Or do you desire to be rewarded for being servants of the King Jesus? You are here on purpose and for a purpose. Christ is not absent, but is present through the Holy Spirit. He is calling you who do not believe to repent and believe that he is worthy of worship of your very life. On the day after Christmas in which the shepherds worship, will you stand outside the staple or will you go in? Observe the meal and, and seek to me or one of the others about the hope we have in Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior and reigning King. Come, take the elements, take them back, and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together.